As we prepare to hear God's word, let's first pause to pray for God to open our hearts and minds. Lord, we stream here from our varied weeks and experiences, and we pray to you that you would open our hearts and minds to hear something from you, a word that is true and a word that is gracious. So may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the beauty of Jesus Christ our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. reading from the book of Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offering to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called my name and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too, I'm watching, says the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today is Palm Sunday, right? And we've acknowledged that. There's a little more pomp and circumstance today, and that will increase uh, next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Um, it's a day in which we celebrate Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. And it begins this really important week for him where he'll do some last teachings and then share one last meal with his disciples before being betrayed by a friend and beaten by his own religious leaders and crucified by the Romans and buried by friends whose hearts and hopes are shattered with sadness. And I thought I had a rough week, you know? It's something. So today's passage is, is kind of a big deal for what it invites us into during this coming week. And as some passages can become familiar, and we might assume we know everything in them, um, I, I didn't want us to miss some really great stuff. So I wanted to go kind of almost line by line through this passage and work our way through this story, where in it we find words about Jesus that both comfort us and challenge us. So, starting off with the first verse. First verse says, When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage 
at the Mount of Olives. I'm going to stop right there to provide a little context for the scene that's happening and unfolding. Uh, up to this point, Jesus is traveling around from town to town, village to village, countryside to countryside. And what he's doing is, is teaching people about his upside-down kingdom that he's bringing, about how the, the poor and the powerless are truly the one that God honors and lifts up. He's eating the homes of, of tax collectors who have ripped people off, the sex worker that's just getting off the night shift, and the drunkard that's just trying to get sober. And he, 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 he not only does that, but he touches the untouchables, and he feeds hungry crowds, and he kind of like rebuffs those religious leaders who just think they're too good for anybody else. And the fascinating thing about this passage that we'll read today is that it's the first time that Jesus enters into Jerusalem during his ministry. And so you might be thinking, okay, so, so what? But this is a huge deal. It's a big deal because Jerusalem was this center of life for Jewish people. It was the political and economic and religious hub. So imagine, imagine take your hometown for a second, that place that you find most dear in life, and combine that with the politics of Washington, D.C., and the economics of New York, and also the style of L.A., all right? And if you combine all those things, that, that, that's kind of a picture of, of what this city might have meant and still means in some way to the Jewish people. Can you imagine such a city? And the amazing thing is it's only a, a city at that time in Jesus' day, about 60,000 people. So it's not a big city, but it's a large part of their hearts. And perhaps the most central reason for, for it being important to them is that it was the city in which God's house was, the temple. The temple was built many, many years before Jesus by Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, King David and his son Solomon, which is really a heck of a father-son project, right? I mean, like, I, made, I think I made a treehouse with my dad. We might have finished that one. But, I mean, a temple, this thing was huge. And this place was significant to this, to this group of people, the Jews, because it was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the very throne on this earth of God. It was the abiding reminder that God was with them. And so Jews would travel from all over the world in order to visit this holy city, particularly for religious festivals. And at the time when we read this verse, that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it's coming to be the time of Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover, you might, you might recall this, but for those who don't, is very important to the Jewish people in their history and heritage and gave them a lot of self-understanding and meaning. Gave them the depth of understanding of who God is and what God had done and who they were. It celebrated this moment in history, accounted for in the book of Exodus, where their ancestors were weighed down and wearied under the harsh rule of this king named Pharaoh. And God heard the cries that rose up to God, crying out, save us, God, save us. 
God heard them, and God called them one night out of that place, out from under the reign of Pharaoh. God called them to cross the Red Sea. God called them to freedom on the other side. So at this moment, when when Jesus is standing there looking at Jerusalem from this Mount of Olives, he's literally with 150,000 other Jews traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival that is remembering the time when God freed them from their oppressors. And it's significant because this isn't just any other year of getting together in the holy city of Jerusalem for some rack of lamb. At this moment, the people of Israel are again weighed down under the Romans, under under Caesar, who says that he's king and God. The Romans had this harsh rule. The Romans' grasp upon the, the world and upon the Jews was suffocating. They were harsh rulers of this violent regime, right, where they had this narrative of just being bigger, faster, stronger, richer, better than anybody else, and going to any length to prove that, even violent means and humiliating means. They were, after all, the ones that really made crucifixion such a famous thing in that world. And so they're here ruling over the Israelites. And worse, their, their way of power pressed down on the thumb of the religious leaders and the kings of Israel made those who were supposed to be caring for the Israelites succumb to their ways of being. And so the kings of Israel were kind of like sellouts in this time, just bending to the rule of Rome. And so as the city swelled the people in anticipation for the festival of Passover, Jesus stood looking at Jerusalem and plotting his next move. So verse 1, 2, and 3 says this. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. So there's this scene. Jesus is on this, this hill, and he's, over, he's looking at Jerusalem, and from this hill, it will go down into the valley, of Kidron Valley, and then up again into Jerusalem, right? Jesus is, is plotting and planning his entrance into this, this city and wanting to communicate something very specific and clear. And that's a good thing, right? Because so, when you're about to confront your own government in the world empire, it's probably good to have a plan. So he tells, <laughs> he tells his disciples, go find a donkey and a colt that's tied up in the town ahead of them and bring them. And I, and I love this line because Jesus is so assured. He even says, like, if somebody gives you a problem, like, just tell them the Lord needs it, which is hilarious because it brings up this scene from Star Wars for me. Um, where, where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker are stopped by a stormtrooper, and the stormtrooper's like, who are these droids? And Obi-Wan's like, these are not the droids that you were looking for, <laughs> right? And so it's like, Jesus, like these disciples, I imagine the scene where some guy's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, the Lord needs them. <laughs> it's like, I love the Bible. We got good stuff like this. Anyway, short of Jedi mind tricks, I, I uh, suspect that Jesus either knew these, these people here 
or maybe just trust in the generosity of the people during this most wonderful time of the year. Um, but Jesus wants this moment to occur for a very specific person. And Matthew quotes Zechariah for emphasis in verse 4 and 5. He says, This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now Matthew here is king us into something distinct about Jesus' move here. Um, and it's funny because I, I, never, I never thought like a bold move would come on the back of a donkey. Um, just a weird thing. But anyways, the bold move comes here. And Jesus is wanting to say, I am your king, Jerusalem. Now think of yourself. If you're going to ride into a city proclaiming your, you know, majesty and royal inheritance, um, what, are you, what are you going to use? A horse, of course, right? And in the ancient world, that's, that's how it went, right? So probably what happened when Rome took over Jerusalem is that the, the Roman official, perhaps uh, it wasn't the emperor himself, but the Roman official would, would tell his servants to go into the city ahead and say, prepare for the, for the person's arrival. And all the people would come out and they would uh, shout things of acclamation and praise as the person riding a horse, the symbol of war, would come into that city. And it was something that happened all over the ancient world in that time. But Israel has to be a little different. <laughs> Two of the great kings, King David and Solomon, uh, David who was a man after God's own heart and Solomon who was the wisest of all people, each rode in on a donkey to Jerusalem at different points in their career. And Israel chose not a horse but a donkey to be their symbol of kingship. And the donkey is really this humble beast of burden, this lowly thing that, that to them symbolized peace. And I think this is so beautiful about what these kings were trying to say because I think they were really trying to say something about who their God is. That their God is one who always works toward peace. And that is the main mission of their rule. And so in this passage, we're talking about a prophecy from Zechariah, right? And Tom did a great job talking about that in the children's message and probably did it better than I could. Zechariah is telling something hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, after King David and Solomon, but before Jesus shows up. And he's speaking about this, this hope that they have for the king, that one day their king would come to them on a donkey, and that, that king would restore the people's fortunes because he... He wouldn't be like a warmongering, horse-riding king of other nations. But Zechariah had that hope that someday a king would come riding on a donkey and would be a man closer to God's heart and wiser than Solomon. And in this, Matthew's really trying to, to communicate to us and Jesus to this city that Jesus is fulfilling these dreams and these hopes. And Matthew su suggests Jesus comes humble but not in the sense of being weak. Rather, in, in the sense of being able to listen to his subjects and those he's supposed to care for. Willing to distribute and share the resources so all have enough. To prioritize 
the person in front of him and the community around him rather than just the authority that can be gained. Poignantly to serve rather than be served. And the, the passage suggests that all of this and what Jesus is trying to communicate about him being king and about his kingship is, uh, is, is taking, taking root in effect. In verse six and nine it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now I know the picture that's forming in your mind. It's Jesus up on like a donkey and a horse and he's coming in like this circus ringleader, right? And I think it's quite funny, but, but I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this isn't what's going on. <laughs> uh, many people believe that Zechariah is just kind of misinterpreting uh, a little bit of Zechariah's poetry here. But you know what? If it helps you to really get into this passage, go right ahead and, and imagine that. But it's not what I want to get hung up on. What I want to focus on is how they roll out the red carpet for Jesus. They shout to Jesus, who's this descendant of David, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Save us, son of David. Shouting to be the one that saves them. And it's as if they're, they're seeing Passover, the sequel, really lived out in front of them at this point. Except this time, God's come to deliver them from the tyrant of Rome to deliver them to freedom. And their hearts warm with hope. The long-awaited one is here. And they throw coats on the ground, and they try to find different things to, with which to praise them, and they grab branches and shout, save us. And perhaps we too recognize ourselves in this crowd. Perhaps if we were there, we might throw down our coats, scatter them along the path like prayers of, of hopes we've longed to be fulfilled and answered. And I say this because I think, I think perhaps if we've wrestled with Jesus, we've come to find the message and the person of Jesus to be really comforting and to be what we have been waiting for, bringing comfort to the, for the ways in which we wish the world to be different or our lives to be different. And within Jesus, the power for peace and change and harmony. And I believe we're supposed to see ourselves in the story in this way and to take comfort. But even as it is a message of comfort, I believe there is a challenge for us in seeing Jesus in this way. Because what, because about those times, there comes points in our lives where we place our, our hope in God and, and prayers in God. We throw coats before him, hoping that God might take those up and act and act quickly and do something. And maybe those prayers are, are something to the effect of this world is getting crazier and crazier and it doesn't seem like God's much involved. And you want God to just swiftly act, powerfully do something. Or maybe you, you see the injustices and inequalities and are frustrated with Jesus. Like, come on, aren't you the one that was always for the one who was 
being stepped upon, being kicked out and pushed to the fringe? And I say this because perhaps it can be at times um, disheartening when we're following Jesus and we don't see our expectations realized and the things we hope for find their end. And I say this because our hopes for life in this world are dear to us, one, but I also say this because our stories of scripture speak to us about how these crowds thought Jesus was gonna change everything and he ended up actually being run over by the Roman Empire and dying. And I say this because even the faithful ones like Peter and John's and James grew angry and frustrated with Jesus at times. And yes, this is all part of following an actual, real, living God. That there are times when we might become distressed and grow weary of how God might be acting. Because we're constantly throwing garments of hope in front of Jesus. And I invite you not to give up if you're in this place. And I invite you to see it through. I invite you to to maybe receive this challenging moment as a challenge to maybe reorient your understanding of Jesus as I think the people there were invited to as well. That Jesus was inviting them to see that he was a different kind of king. And though sometimes our Christian life is perhaps lived more like the experience of this side of Easter than on the other, I pray you take heart in what Tom was saying, that, that Easter is a symbol that there is hope and that God is still working and still moving and active among us, even when it might not seem as such. The story challenged us to follow and have hope in Jesus, even when it seems God is holding up on God's side of the bargain. And it challenges us to have hope while we watch for Jesus to move. So as Jesus moves into the city, he creates chaos, right? Verse 10 and 11 speak to this, saying, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil and asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus is moving in. He's declaring himself as a king to everybody there, but the humble king, right? And in this next sequence, we see the way in which Jesus exercises his power as he moves to the heart of Jerusalem in the temple. Verse 12 and 13 say this, Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is super mad because there's so many things that are wrong going on in this picture. All the people are streaming to to Jerusalem, right? And the purpose is to participate in worship and be with God and be with God's people. But in order to do that, you had to offer animal sacrifices, right? In order to get an animal sacrifice, you had to pay with the money you had, but you couldn't use your Roman coins, your Babylonian coins, your Greek coins. You had to use the temple currency, the Jewish money. And so you had to go and find the money changers, right? However, the money changers took advantage of the people who were always trying to worship because they would often add interest charges and transactional fees. And so it's kind of like dealing with Verizon as you're trying to renegotiate your contract at year end, right? (laughs) Another thing that was wrong with this scene 
is that the business was typically done outside the temple and not in it. And at some point, the high priest said, you know what? I bet we can get a little cream on the, off the top here if we just move this inside and we can get a cut. And so they moved it inside those walls. There was a big courtyard, right? And then inside was the place of worship. So they moved this money-changing scenario with all these animals inside the court where people were invited to come and pray. And further, the last detail, and I love this the most, is that Jesus absolutely unloads on the people who are selling doves, particularly. But why? It's because if you were rich, you brought lambs, and you bought lambs to sacrifice those. But if you were poor, you bought doves because it's all you could afford. And so in one movement, we see the zeal and the heart for justice that God is about. In kicking out the money changers and turning over the tables, driving out all the people and their animals, all those people taking advantage of people and the poor particularly. And at times we think of Jesus so meek and mild and humble, but we get here the fiery Jesus who's angry and consumed with passion for the way that things should be. And so he cleans everything out so that others can come in. And all at once, there's this clear and beautiful thing taking place. In verse 14 through 17, this is the last sequence of the passage. It says, the blind and the lame came in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them after that and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus creates space within the house of God for all people to come and be. And he transports transforms this place of commerce into a house of healing and wholesomeness and wholeness. And he rebuffs those who got it off track. The Bible scholars and the, and the lawyers are supposed to know. I love, I love what he says. He's like, um, he, they come to him and they say, hey, what gives? You're, uh, you're terrible for our business here. And gosh, the children are being so distracting in church again. And he says, <laughs> I love Jesus' reply. He says, haven't you guys read your Bibles? Haven't you read the scriptures? and rebukes them for what they're saying because they're missing the point and keeping people from presence with God and one another. It's a clear scene of Jesus' whole ministry, perhaps, that the Prince of Peace comes to transform and restore a world. He comes straight to the heart of the city to transform the business of religion from the practice of sacrifice to receiving the gift of healing. He's consumed with a vision for justice where the, the lowly and the outsider and the weak are lifted up and tells the powerful and the prideful to take a hike and come back when they are humble. He comes to challenge the way things are in order to bring comfort and healing. And I think that's what we need to hear. That King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, really shows his cards and bears his heart for us in this way. And again, it's a challenge and a comfort to us in the way that Jesus moves into the heart of this temple and into the heart of our lives. And I want it to be the last wrestling that we have to today. 
that Jesus moves into the center of our lives, into the center of our hearts, into the center of who we are to comfort us or challenge us to transform what's within us. And so maybe he's moving to the center of your heart and your life in order to challenge you. Perhaps moving to challenge your assumptions or the things that you hold as the regular assumed rhythms that are just okay and that you're used to. But challenging them because they're not truly giving you life. And Jesus goes out of his way with deep care and compassion and love for you to challenge these things. To reflect on them and how he can bring you into alignment with this beautiful reign that will give you life. Or maybe Jesus is, is moving to the center of who you are and to the depths of who you are because he wants to comfort you and lift you up and console you and bring wholeness to your heart that has been broken. But in all, Jesus moves to the center of our lives, providing what we need. Jesus wants to, us to be whole, at peace, and to flourish through the transformation he can, can provide. So that so that he can invite us into the heart of our friend groups, into the heart of our families, into the heart of our cities and communities, so that those things and those places might experience the same transformation, the same cleansing, and the same peace. And this is the beautiful work we're invited into. Let's pray. Lord God, you show us so many good things. We see your concern for the lowly and the poor and the children, and we, we pray that we truly take this deep into our hearts and that we might act in the same passionate way that you have shown throughout this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh,